You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow for a word of prayer and I'll walk us through our our next lesson here. Our most dearest Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the day that you have brought forth. And Father God, we thank you for the fact that uh, we are really free in this country, free to come as we are tonight to this wonderful building, to take a peek at your word and to see what your word has to teach us tonight. And Father, as we continue to wrap up the doctrines of grace and uh, reform theology, we ask that as we look tonight at these specific passages, I just ask that you would teach us with the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us your word, help us to understand it, and more importantly, not only understand it, but help us to apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you for the doctrines of grace because when we have studied them, what we have seen all the way through is how you are 100% responsible for our salvation. Father, from beginning to end, it is all of you. And uh, we thank you for that. And the Apostle John was right. We love you because you first loved us. And you've expressed that love so magnificently through your precious and dearest Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father God, it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, folks, as we have wrapped up the doctrines of grace, I felt it was very important that we take a look at something, and that is the eternality of God's plan, redemption, and the eternality of God's word, period. And so I didn't want to move on into discussing, as I've promised you, which will take place next week, the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism. We were launch into that next week. What I wanted to do this week is I wanted to use the selective scriptures in order for you to see something that's critical. And that is the eternality of God's plan and his word. So I want to begin by reading a quote to you. The quote begins, Unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I will not recant. Because my conscience is held captive by the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor wrong. Now, does anybody know who said that? Anybody have any idea? Luther. Martin Luther. Friends, those immortal words were uttered by Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Luther was on trial, and he was on trial for his life before the authorities of both the church and the state. And both the church and the state charged him with serious heresy. When commanded to recant 
his doctrine of justification by faith, he insisted that his doctrine was based on the scriptures. He insisted on it. Truthfully, he was right. Therefore, Martin Luther could not recant anything that he presented to church and state. By the way, that was the Catholic Church. So for him to say to act against conscience is neither right nor safe, I agree with him. To go against Scripture would never be right or safe. Martin Luther understood that. Thus, the Protestant Reformation was the dispute over the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. In essence, whittle it down even further, the Reformation was a dispute over biblical authority. Martin Luther was battling the church and state over scriptural authority. In essence, justification by faith through grace in Christ alone. In other words, he was disputing sola scriptura. We've all heard that term. Sola scriptura or sola fide. Scripture alone, faith alone. Now this term, sola scriptura, declared the idea that only the Bible has the authority to bind the conscience of believers. I think you've heard me say this over and over and over again through our study, that I've said to you, test all opinions and all utterances on the altar of biblical fidelity. Martin Luther did that. And he was in a dispute for his life over the scriptures. Protestants did recognize, though, other forms of authority, friends, such as church creeds and confessions. They recognized the authority of those, but they saw those authorities as being derived from and subordinate to the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Bible, the authority of God's Word. Thus, the reform quest for a systematic theology is an effort to define the system of doctrine clearly and concisely taught by one authority, Scripture alone. When I became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ 27 years ago, I had to make a conscience decision right then and there. And that was what is going to be the final and only authority in my life. I made it God's word. Now, friends, that was very difficult because both myself and Lori, we were raised Catholic. And all of our uh, education years from kindergarten to 12th grade was in the Catholic school. We had Roman Catholicism daily drummed in our heads in religion class. 27 years ago, when I embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I had to make a conscious decision. Was it going to be the laws and, and, and writings of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, the Cardinals, the bishops, and the priests? Or the Scriptures? Obviously, I chose the Scripture. 
That was the same thing that Martin Luther did back in the 1500s. He chose the scriptures. So taken from its most simplistic principles, reformed theology is first and foremost theocentric. Anybody know what that word means? Have you heard that word before? Theocentric? What would be centric? You're right. Centered on God. Theocentric means God-centered. Reformed theology is God-centered or man-centered, which I believe is Arminianism. And that's the main difference, friends, between Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism is God-centered. Arminianism is man-centered. Now, I'm going to return to this matter of the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism next week. But for tonight, what I want us to look at is God's eternal plan, our redemption, our regeneration, our glorification. And we want to look at the plan that God developed and set up for eternity. So I want to begin by saying that it's unthinkable that a God of infinite wisdom and power would create a world without a definite plan for that world. Think about that. It is unthinkable that God of infinite wisdom and infinite power would create a world without a definite plan for that world. And because God is infinite, his plan must extend to every detail of the world's existence. Now hang with me. I'm going to flush this out. If you and I could see the world in all its history, past, present, and future, we would see that it is following a predetermined course with exact precision. Loved ones, you cannot conceive of God bringing into existence a universe without a plan which would extend to all that would be done in that in universe. Scriptures teach that God's providential control extends to all events, even the most minute. So far, so good? Everybody tracking with me? Thereby, the scriptures also teach that God's plan is equally comprehensive. If God had not or if God had not foreordained the course of events, but waited to see how they would unfold, his decrees would be neither eternal nor immutable. Now you all know that that's not what God did. Remember when we got to the doctrine of foreknowledge and predestination, and I told you that most Christians believe 
that foreknowledge is God looking down through the halls of time and seeing what people are going to do and then himself react. Remember that? That's what most Christians today believe. But foreknowledge is not that, right? Foreknowledge is God foreordaining what's going to happen down the line in the halls of time, right? Because he foreordained it or predetermined it through foreknowledge and predestination. Well, God did the same thing, not only for the redemption of the true believer in Jesus Christ, he also has set history in motion from beginning to end. And he's not sitting up in heaven waiting to see what's going to happen and then reacting. That's not God. If God had not foreordained the course of events but waited to see how they would unfold, his decrees would be neither eternal or immutable. But we know, however, that God is incapable of mistake and that he cannot be surprised by any unforeseen event, right? He knows what's going to happen before it ever happens, does he not? He does. Thus, God's plan must therefore include every event in the entire sweep of history. History in all its details, even the most minute, is but the unfolding eternal purpose of God. But please note, and I can't stress this enough, God's decrees, God's decrees are not successively formed as an emergency arises. Let me repeat that. God's decrees are not successively formed as an emergency arrives. In other words, he is not sitting up in heaven on his throne, watching out over the creation, over the universe, seeing what's going to happen and going, how am I going to react? His decrees do not work that way. He isn't taken by surprise. He isn't caught off guard. He's in full, complete control of everything in this universe. As we have often said, he is not only the creator of the universe, but he's the sustainer of the universe and all that the universe encompasses. And it's all part of his eternal plan. Nothing that happened today in Washington caught the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit off guard. I think Pastor Jim one time said, God's not sitting up in heaven wringing out his hands and going, oh gosh, what am I going to do? Didn't Pastor Jim say that once? Friends, Everything that happens is all part of one comprehensive plan. And we should never, bold never, never think of God as suddenly implementing a plan or doing something as a reaction to something which snuck up on him. Never 
think that. Never think of something not thought of before. And he's reacting because something he never thought of took place. Mm -mm. Even the sinful acts of men are included in his plan. Even the sinful acts of men are included in his plan. They are foreordained, permitted, and have their exact place in his plan. In other words, they are controlled and overruled by his divine design. Now, let's look at the scriptural proof for everything I have just said. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this this evening. In your outline that I gave you, I said, Roman number one, God's plan is eternal. Okay? His plan is eternal. Turn with me, please, to Psalms 33, Psalm 33, verse 11. I'll wait till I don't hear the pages turning. Psalm 33, verse 11. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. Everybody there? Verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands how long? I didn't hear you. Forever. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Who's the nation? The blessed nation who belongs to God. Israel. Israel. I wish it was the United States. Go to Psalm 139, verse 16, please. And I hope you find it interesting how much Old Testament we are looking at right in the beginning. The Old Testament ascribes to God's eternality in His plan. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book, look what it says, they all were written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. I love that. Remember when we looked at uh, the depravity of man, and David said, and I don't remember which psalm, he said, you formed me in my mother's womb, even in sin. Remember that? As, 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 as much as in conception, man is born in sin. He's depraved. Before he was ever born. Look at Isaiah 37, please. Isaiah 37, 26.
everybody there? It's a beautiful verse. Isaiah 37, verse 26. Did you not hear long ago how I made it? From ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins? Did you not hear how long ago I made it? <laughs> how about Psalm 46, verses 9 and 10? Pardon me, you're right. Yeah, what did I say, babe? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. I don't hear any pages turning. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Look what it says. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, and it will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it and will also do it. You could not misunderstand that, could you? Pretty clear, huh? How about Jeremiah 31.3? Everybody there? Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. An everlasting love. That love, that love was before the foundation of the world. That love is going to begin at the foundation of the world and it's go, before the foundation of the world, excuse me, and it's going to go in through eternity, never to cease. Because God's plan is eternal. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25, please. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. We don't have time tonight, but sometime I would love to challenge you. Read Matthew chapter 25. And if you really want to jump into it, start in chapter 23. <clears throat> 24 and 25. But what we want to look at tonight is just verse 34. Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, 
Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. We're part of that kingdom, beloved. Anybody who is a born-again believer, the true believer of Christ, who's been regenerated, born again, is a member of God's kingdom. We will be a member of His kingdom for eternity. It'll never cease because God's plan of redemption is eternal. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, please. I think I said this to you last week. Some of these verses we have looked at over and over and over again because they have so much theology in all of these verses that we keep looking at over and over. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. I'm going to start in verse 3 because I just can't skip by it. so beautiful. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now Paul's launching into it. This, this anthem of praise. Just as God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And on we go, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. And we've read this all the way through over and over again. But look what verse 4 says. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Can you imagine this? Very hard to, but there was no universe. In other words, there were no... Walk outside tonight. If it wasn't cloudy, all the stars, the galaxies that you see... Nothing was there, not even darkness. No sun, no moon, no earth, no oceans, no trees, no mountains. Nothing was there. God existed with the triune God. Before He created what you and I know as the earth, before He ever created that, He knew us, and he foreordained and predestined and in real time elected us and called us to salvation. Our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation speaks of that. This is why his plan of redemption is eternal. Because what God decrees, God's going to perform it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? Complete it. Philippians 1.6 Since we're in Ephesians, go to 3.11, please. I hate to just jump into a verse, but... I'm looking at the clock. We've got to get going. 
Look at verse 11. Everything that Paul said in, in, in Ephesians 1, 2, and then specifically 3 and after, he says this, It is all because according to the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of what he spoke of in 1 and 2 and thereafter is according to the eternal purpose of God, which he accomplished, catch that? He accomplished it and he did it in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love that. I love that title. Our Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, he has to be your Lord besides being your Savior. He must be the Lord of your life if he's the Savior of your life. Love that title. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, please. You guys are going to recognize this one immediately. Everybody there? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Here's why. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. Verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at down at verse 16. Giving us everlasting comfort and a good hope by his grace. But you don't have to turn there. Just listen to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively, effectively works in you who believe. How about 2 Timothy 1.9? Everybody there? Verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of his prisoner, but share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. When? Before time began. Now, if God did all of that before time began, then he's certainly going to finish it and take it all the way to eternity forever. Let's look at 1 Peter 1.20. We've looked at this one a lot also.
1 Peter 1.20. This is Peter speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I, I'm going to start in, in, in chapter 1. I'm going to start really in verse 1. So follow with me. And all, those, all of you who have been here from the beginning, I actually did this passage, uh, the entire passage, uh, it was called the saint's inheritance, and it was for the subject of the preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. I don't know if you remember that. That was a long time back here, but we looked at this in great detail. But I want to read it again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, look what he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And just like Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us. Some of you may have uh, born again, same, same exact term, who has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's what he did also, to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now jump over. He indeed also foreordained before the foundation of the world, He's speaking of Christ. This is Christ. He indeed was foreordained. Christ was indeed foreordained. By the way, same word as foreknowledge in verse 2. Same exact word. Why did they go to foreordain this time? I can't answer it, but it's a much more accurate uh, interpretation of the original language when he said foreordained. He should have said the same thing in verse 2. Elect according to the foreordation of God. But he says of Jesus was indeed for verse 20 before the foundation of the world. Now, just real quickly. Armenians teach that God, again, looks down through the halls of time and he's going to see what that individual is going to do down there in, in time. And then if he's going to believe in God, God's going to go ahead and redeem him and make him an elect. That's what they believe. We all know that God does not look down the halls of time and see what that man's going to do, right? If he did, then he would have done the same thing here in verse 20 to Jesus. Do you think for one minute God looked down the halls of time and went, okay, let's see what Jesus is going to do on earth. Okay, he's going to go get on that cross and get crucified. I'm going to use him to save everybody. Do we believe that? Well, if he didn't do that to Jesus and he uses the word foreordained, he didn't do it to any of us when it uses the word foreordained, did he? He decreed it. Right here it says, before the foundation of the world. What he decrees in the beginning, he will carry all the way through to the end. The end is eternity, beloved. God's plan is eternal, and God's plan is, is, is forever, never to change. So 
Second thing I want you to see here. God's plan includes the future acts of man. Now, some of you might find that strange. We talked about this at great length. His plan includes the future acts of man. Well, let's turn to Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. I'll be honest, I went and found a new verse that I did not ever use before. Kind of held on to this one. Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. Everybody there? But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. God uses future acts of men to be a part of what his plan and decrees are going to be. Throughout the Old Testament, we have examples after examples after examples. Let me give you one where he uses men's future acts, including their sinful acts. Pharaoh. One of the greatest examples, Pharaoh. Let me give you another couple examples. Joseph's brothers, Joseph's 11 brothers. Once again, the king of Egypt, the king of Egypt's wife. What was her name? Potiphar? Oh, Potiphar, Potiphar was it? Pot, which I forget right off the top of my head. Which one is it? Potiphar was the king of Egypt. Is Potiphar's wife? Here's my point. Here's my point. Sinful acts of men were part of God's decree. We never think about that. The sinful acts of men. I'm going to show you a couple of real good ones here in a second. Go to Matthew chapter 20, please. Let's drop back to Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 19. Everybody there? Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Verse 17, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And... The third day he will rise again. Now I'm setting this up here. This is our Lord speaking to his disciples, 12 apostles, telling him what's going to take place with the Son of Man. He's showing those disciples, and they didn't even realize it, the decree of God before the foundation of the world, what acts sinful men are going to perform on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Turn over John chapter 6, verse, 60, uh, verse 64. Everybody there? Everyone there? Look at verse 64. This is our Lord speaking. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. He knew that from the beginning of what? Diane? Absolutely. Do you think Jesus was, was, was hanging out with these cats and all of a sudden he knew what they were all about? Of course not. Well, yeah, he did know what they were about, but he knew what they were about before the foundation of the world. From the beginning, he said. Not from the beginning of when he met them. Not from the beginning of when they were starting to persecute him. from the beginning, the beginning of time. Now these next two are my favorite. Turn over to Acts, please. Because this just blows a hole in the thought that God waits to see what sinful men are going to do. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 This is the first sermon preached in the New Testament by, by uh, Peter. It was on Pentecost Sunday. This is when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, his last time to see him. This is when the Holy Spirit came down upon him. And this is the beginning of the church. And this is Peter standing up to preach. Now listen to what he said. Verse 23. Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, signs, excuse me, miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Everybody catch that? Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge or foreordination of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Beloved, God used the sinful acts of men in which he decreed before the foundation of the world for them to arrest our blessed Savior and crucify him. It says right here, he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreordination of God. 
Did the men play into the hand of God? Yes, they did. In a minute, I'm going to ask you a tough question. Let's see. I'm going to see how you answer this. Acts chapter 4. It's said again. Same thing, just a little bit different. Not much. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Everyone there? For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Before when? Before the act? This was determined before when? Right before the act was committed? Before the foundation of the world. Before we go to the third point, God's plan is immutable. Before we go there, I, I want to just ask this question. Don't be afraid. Raise your hand and tell me what you think. Does God predetermine, foreordain men to sin? Diane says no. Nate? Huh? What are prophecies? You're asking predictions. Future, futuristic. True. Yeah. Okay. So does God? Diane did. Really? I love it. You guys, the wheels are turning. That's exactly what I wanted to do here. Through one man's sin, sin entered all men. Romans 5.12. Jeff, Jeff Sharp. I'm not trying to pick on you or pick you out. I just... Yes, what? Good. 
Any other thoughts? He's right on. And yet no man hold God accountable for our sin. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, good, good reminder there. What does James say? Doesn't James have something to say about sin? Not accusing God of sin? John says in him is no darkness at all. So I, I, I'm going to prompt you, and I'm going to move on. I, I'm going to make a challenge. Next week, before we begin looking at the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, and, and it's going to take probably three weeks to flush it out because I'm going to do it thoroughly. Just as I, as I said to you, warning you, this is coming. Search the scriptures this week. Make some notes. Come in, let's discuss it. It's a challenging question, Jay. Ah. Anybody can answer that before I do? When was the first sin committed? Who? Where did he do that? With Adam and Eve? Where did he do that? You're on track. Keep going. I'm just having fun with you. Right. He sinned against God, did he not? God threw him out of heaven. But sin entered humanity through who? Through one man's sin, sin entered all men. Romans 5.12. Jay, this is good. This I love this. I, you know what I prayed for? That we get this kind of stuff going. This is what I like now. Okay. Yeah, Jay. Yeah, they're not. They're good questions. I didn't throw that out sitting here tonight just to get you tripped up. I wanted them wheels turning. Mm -hmm. Can't. Can't. Of course. But he didn't create the sin in Lucifer. Lucifer had a free will. Adam and Eve had a free will until they sinned. Then their will was in bondage to what? They were a slave to sin now, huh? In my bibliography that I'm going to give you the last time we're together, it's a huge, huge thing, this bibliography. I'm going to, you'll be amazed at all the resources. One of the books that I would challenge you to read is The Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Willing to Believe. I highly recommend that. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book, 
freedom of the will, I think. That's not in my bibliography because I didn't read it. But I, but I believe that's the name of it. Look at James this week. You can't do it tonight. It's 8 o'clock. Let's go to James. Take a peek at James. Remember what James says. Let's look at God's plan, being immutable. Before we go to the scriptures, what does immutable mean? The immutability of God. Nate? Never changing. Amen. Yep. Let's go to Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. And I think it's important that we understand this method of my madness here is we've been studying the doctrines of grace, reformed theology. And we have been scarifying all the ground of scripture. And one of the things that we have seen throughout this study is the eternality of our salvation. And that's because the eternality of our salvation is based on the eternal plan of God and his eternal word. And if God is not immutable, in other words, if God is changing, then we better have a problem with our salvation, possibly. But God isn't changing. He never changes. That's one of the reasons why the eternality of our redemption, our salvation, is eternal. Because of the immutability of God. Numbers 23, 19. I love this. Listen to this. God is not a man that he should lie. Oh, goodness. Man's a liar, isn't he? I've lied. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Absolutely. On every single one of those, yes. Let's go to Isaiah, please. Chapter 14. verse 24 and verse 27. And what this is speaking of is the judgment on Assyria. But Isaiah is proving the immutable character of God. Verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn saying, surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purpose, so it shall stand. Verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? No one, no one. Isaiah chapter 46. Verses nine through 11. 
Isaiah speaking about the power of God. Yes, Nate. I used to think the same all the time too. Wait a minute, I'm not supposed to swear on anything. That means make an oath and swear on that oath. But here's God doing it. Can the potter do whatever the potter wills? Yeah. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it and it will also, and I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. Boy, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Malachi 3.6. Last book of the Old Testament. Last chapter. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. <laughs> Couldn't miss that, could you? For I am the Lord, I do not change. Go over to Romans chapter 11, verse 29. Great verse. As you're turning there, remember Romans 9, 10, and 11 is Paul's three chapters in Romans that outline God's definitive sovereignty over the election of whom he wills. Three chapters dedicated to that subject matter. And in chapter 11, verse 29, the great apostle penned these words, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Turn over to Titus chapter 1, verse 2, please. Everybody there in Titus? Chapter 1, verse 2, picking up verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's, look what it says, elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Those two verses are packed with theology. 
Those two simple verses. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Let's look at one more. James chapter 1, verse 17, please. James chapter 1, verse 17. I pray this all the time with Lori. I love the verse. I'm going to sneak in the one after it one. Hey, real quickly, just because we're so close, I can't stand it. i got to sneak something in on you. And then you guys go look at it this week. James, I told you to look at the book of James regarding sin. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother, brethren. Verse 17. Love it. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Look with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Verse 18, I love this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Ooh, love it. Jesus' half-brother James, who didn't believe in his own brother until he was crucified and resurrected from the dead, he became a believer, and he was placed as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James, his half-brother. And he makes this fantastic statement in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of attorney. Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Beloved, I need to tell you as I close this up here tonight, there are people, brothers and sisters in Christ, who believe that God is not immutable, that God changes. Now, I'm not going to touch on it tonight, but I will tell you one of the examples they use, that Moses ran down from Mount Sinai and begged God to spare the, Israel, or the Hebrews. They weren't Israel yet. And he changed God's mind. I know people who believe that Jonah changed God's mind in the belly of the whale. If you run into those folks, save this page. Xerox it and hand it to them. In closing, It has been recognized by Christians of all ages that God is the creator and ruler of the universe. And that as creator and ruler of the universe, he is the ultimate source of all the power that is found in the creatures of his creation. Therefore, nothing can come to pass apart from God's sovereign will. Nothing. At the end of the book of Job, 
If you want to turn there, you can. But at the end of the book of Job, Job declared this. Job 42.2 I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job said that. Job 42, chapter 42, verse 2. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in the earth, in the seas and in all deep places. Can I have eight more minutes of your time? Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 32, please. Just a couple more. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Everybody there? Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. This is Jeremiah's prayer, verse 16. Let's pick it up there. Now, when I had delivered the purchase deed to Barak, the son of Neri, I prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Nothing. Turn over to Matthew 28, 18, please. Matthew chapter 28, really verse 18 is what I want to look at. I'll pick it up again in verse 16. This is Jesus in Galilee. Of course, you guys know this as his great commission. I've never liked that. And I know we've used that term forever. I think it's his great commandment. It's a commandment. Go ye therefore. I don't know how we always call it the great commission. It's a commandment. But look what he says in verse 18. And Jesus came, or verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. It's all his. And then of course the great commandment, go ye therefore and make disciples. What I wanted you to see is All authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. Is is the earth under the authority of Christ right now? Another, Another. Who who is the prince and power of this earth? Satan. Okay. So I'm just throwing this out here. you don't have to answer it. Maybe get you thinking a little bit. 
Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. Is that right now? Go to Romans chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. We're just about done. Romans chapter 9. God, I would give anything to be able to do an exposition on Romans 9, 10, 11 regarding the doctrines of grace starting in actually chapter 8, verse 28. But in Romans chapter 9, 20 and 21, Paul is arguing the sovereignty of God in the election of Israel. And of course, it's pointing to God's sovereignty in the election of the true believer. And after he's been arguing, he knows that man in his sinfulness is going to propose a couple of these rhetorical questions that we find in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. And so Paul is recognizing that man is still going to question the sovereignty of God. And, and, and it's because we're depraved. And also because I have said to you, because sin has affected the whole being of man, our reasoning has been tainted by sin. And therefore, it's hard for us to reason through a lot of biblical truths. Look what Paul says in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. He says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? <laughs> Beloved, Everything is controlled and overruled by God's divine design and sovereign will. Period. I felt that this was also critically important after we just spent weeks studying the doctrines of grace found clearly in Scripture. And I felt that it was so critical for us to understand that God's eternal plan of redemption is exactly that. It's eternal. Because it began before anything was created. And it's going to end never for us. We're here tonight not able to understand time in God's eyes. Time to us is, it's time to go to bed, it's time to get up, it's time to go to work, it's time to eat, blah, blah, blah. We live in this time realm. God's outside of time. Now, I've tried and tried and tried and tried to think about eternity forever. 
can't. But God's plan and God's word is eternal. What did Peter say? The, didn't he say about God's word that the flower fade, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endureth how long? Forever. God's plan is eternal. God's word is eternal. And praise God that it is because that's part of our eternality because of his eternal plan. You see how all of this ties together and how we could end here? His eternal plan, his eternal word. He's, he's immutable, never going to change. Bless his name, especially for us. Next week, I'm going to present to you an overview, not a detailed, and I'm going to be, be honest why, I can't wrap my head around Arminianism. I have rejected it for my 27 years as a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm going to do my very best to explain to you the five articles of Arminianism. And then I'm going to turn right around and I'm going to walk you through the five points of Calvinism using the acronym that everybody knows, TULIP. I'm anticipating that to be about a three-week time together. When I go to do Arminianism, I have no scripture to support what Arminians believe. and, And I was not about to read a book about that thick called Arminianism Theology. I didn't want to waste my time reading something that I completely reject. So next week, I'll take you through the history, how it became known as Arminianism, where it came from, and what those five articles are. And then the following weeks, we'll turn around and look at Calvinism. Calvinism, five points, is the doctrines of grace. It's Reformed theology, historically known as Calvinism. At the end of that, One more week, I'm going to take Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and I'm going to hand you a manuscript, a three-page manuscript, and we're going to go through it together, and I'm going to show you how we exegete, extract the meaning out of a text. Why am I using Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9? Because people in Christendom debate all the time what the gift of is in that passage. Is it grace or is it faith or is it both? And it's been debated forever. I'd like to show you how we can disregard the debate and show you what the truth of God's word tells us is the gift. That make sense? Thank you for everybody coming tonight. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so very much for this this magnificent body of scripture we call the Bible. It shows us our eternal God and our eternal God's plan and it shows us the eternal word of God. I love what scripture says that the man of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work by the word of God. Father, thank you for thank you for giving us 
this precious book. I've heard it said that the Bible is beautiful information before leaving earth. And it is, it is that very thing, but it's so much more. And I thank you so much that your Holy Spirit was joining with us each week, helping us to understand and helping us to apply the truths of your word to our lives. The doctrines of grace are so rich, it's beyond measure. But once again, the one and only thing that I have been praying all the way through this is that we will fall in love with you so much more. That our love for you will be developed and be that much stronger when we see clearly what you have done on our behalf. That you are fully and solely and wholly responsible for our salvation and the eternality of it. It's all because of you. And it's a precious gift that is priceless because it costs you your most blessed, beloved Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it is in His name that we pray these sayings. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.